Father, we just thank you so much for bringing Jeff here. It's just it's our privilege to, to get to hear what you've done in his heart and in his life. And we just thank you for sharing that with us. I pray that you'd speak through him tonight, that you'd fill him with your spirit in a special way to, uh, to speak to our hearts, and that we'd be open to your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, internship. Oh. I say without reservation that every single one of you should at least ask Jesus if he thinks you should do the internship. Every single, there should be 200 and some prayers multiple times about whether or not you should do the internship. doesn't mean you will, but you should ask Jesus if he thinks you should. The internship for me I was not going to do campus ministry. No, thank you. I like I liked it, but uh, I w- that wasn't my my thing. I was probably going to go teach uh, abroad. I was probably going to go work with either a sort of a social justice organization like Samaritan's Purse, um, or get my teaching degree and go teach um, somewhere else than America. And that was kind of my deal. Um, and the internship for me was like a a chance to give a year back. Uh, to the ministry that had really blessed me. I mean, you get to, you know, help the mission continue for a year, personally, hands-on. Uh, it was also a personal enrichment year. The studies you get to do, um, the, the, the further learning you get out of leading a corps and mentoring and discipleship, you do realize that your staff, <laughs> forget your staff, you do realize that Jesus hopes you will be leading a corps for the rest of your life, right? Are we aware of this? That the call to go and make disciples, to make space in your life for ministering to younger believers and for praying for people and to making friends and to communicating the gospel, that this is not a college thing. Do we know this? Okay. Because Jesus said so. And so your staff has said, yes, Lord, we will say the same thing. And they have. So it was a great place for me to learn basically how to be a, a Christian for longer. You know what I mean? Um, and in the process of that year, in the process of the conversations with my staff oversight, my pastoral supervisor, um, God did some really cool things and, and spoke to me in some very clear ways and some very rational ways some very like, this makes a lot of sense. Um, and here I am and I'm still here. And until Jesus is otherwise, I'm staying. Not in Dallas, but in campus ministry. So do that. that, that I mean, pray about it. The internship is great. Um, gosh, I want to say something else too, that, uh, that romance stuff this morning. Let's see here. That is true. Okay. I, I was talking to Mandy about this after her session. We really wish that we could take you young, idealistic, (laughs) Fools. <laughs> and, and fast forward you four, five, ten years in marriage and just like help you make decisions now based on what it's going to be like then. Don't forget things like morning breath. <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I roll over and look at my wife and her hair looks awful. <laughs> And she's, her breath is bad. And mine is worse. So it's not like I wake up and make out with my bride. 
Like, it's just not that way. You guys, you start having kids, you start having, you I mean, talk about sex. You have a baby, the doctor says, sir, uh-uh, six weeks. Just so you know. This, so, so here's the thing, here's the thing. What, what this romance thing does and what pre-E does is it takes people who are there looking back at you wonderfully excited, idealistic, romantically, la, 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 whatever. It, and that's, that's fun. It's enjoyable. But you've got to keep, you've got to realize it's kind of crazy. I was there. I was totally infatuated with Jessica. Anyway, and we say, okay, here's what we know will help you in the long run because we are committed to this la, la, la more than the la, la, la is committed to this. That's going to go. And it'll come and go throughout the relationship. There are times when I still look across the room, I look at Jessica, and I'm like, how am I so blessed? I got her. Wow, yes. There are other times where I come home, and I'm like, you are a sinful person. And I am not. So... Until you change your attitude, uh, we're done like for the night of talking. And I will be in the family room. And you can take care of screaming Owen. I mean, there's just this what happens. It comes and goes and you learn to live with that rhythm. And pre-E and this romance stuff they're talking about is all so real. So hear my, hear my plea, okay? Usually, the people in the room who most need to take this seriously are the ones with the most plugged ears. And the most... I mean, you, have, you have soundtracks going in your head of love, love, love. And you have the movie screens in your eyes. I mean, please prove me wrong. Please prove me wrong that you in the room who most need to hear this will actually take this to heart and change things about your relationships and change things about what your, your, your relationships to be, etc. Okay? That ain't Luke. That's me. As a, as a, as a, I'm still fairly newly married. We're only, we're getting five years in September. So I'm not even that far into this. And I'm like, man, I'm glad I took pre-E. How often in, in your dating, this is going too long, whatever. How many times in your dating relationship are you going to sit down and say, sweet love of my life, let's talk about our future budget. How much do you think we should spend on an entertainment system? You don't talk about that when you're dating, but you talk about it in pre-E because that is what will get you divorced later. Money is the number one cause for divorce. Actually, it's a, it's a close second, or this is the close second, to adultery. So you talk about physical boundaries, sexual control. You had better get a handle on that before you say, I do, because you don't change at the altar. I'm preaching the same stuff. You, it's real, okay? It's just... Buy it. And I just am sold out on that stuff. Your staff is so smart. And they're telling you the truth. And they love you. It's for your sake that they're telling you this stuff. Okay? They don't want to see you crash. They do not. They're going to live by it. They think they'll actually get some really awesome mates out of it. And some of them have. So they put their money where their mouth is, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That's all. Okay, and, and one clarification I did want to make. The can-can idea... Something that Brandon said reminded me that I want to make sure to clarify. The can-can was permission-based, and we, so what me and Jessica did, and this is, this is Jessica, you guys. This is not like my, like, oh, what a clever idea. That's my wife. <laughs> she is really great at this. 
we came up um, with a list of, of physical affection things we wanted to show to each other separate from each other. So I went and prayed, she went and prayed, and I came up with, okay, here's what I think is safe. Here's what I think is wholesome. Here's what I think benefits the relationship, moves it where it should go. And here's what I would be okay with everyone watching us doing. This is, this is, these are things that I feel like I'm not going to feel like I'm doing something naughty because I'm in the corner. Okay, make a list. Then we brought our lists to a date. We were in, it was a hot date. We were in the mall <laughs> over Subway. And um, Subway, don't knock Subway. Subway's so good. And for you. Um, so... We brought our list to the table with a pair of scissors and we would discuss each one. So I would say, how about this one? If she was okay with it, if that didn't cross lines for her, we cut it out and we dropped it in the can-can. Okay, and we went back and forth like that. And so it was really important that what she said was okay and and there were things she said, how about we do this? And I said, you know what? That's going to be a little, that's going to be tough for me. I don't think I can stay where Jesus wants us to stay if we do that. Okay, crumple, chuck. Okay, so that's how the can-can worked. Um, And I wanted to throw that in there. So... Might be a good idea. My wife's a smart lady. But she's a sinner, and so am I. You've got to get, learn how to use that. I don't want to miss that. It's so true. We are, and you will not, I thought I was a nice guy. I thought I was a nice guy until I got married. I am a jerk and a slob. I, ah, tell you, oh, man. We could, I could talk on all night. It's, I love this stuff. Okay. All right. Where are we on my notes? <laughs> okay, okay. Let me, let me recap for us, okay? And then we'll, we'll get rolling. Justin, I'm sorry. One. Yeah, okay. And then A. The movie, okay. Technologically challenged. I also suck at the Wii. Anyway. Okay, so this far this weekend. So far, huh? The inspired epic of Luke, which, ah, study it, you guys. Study it on your own. It is a wealth of, of uh, beautiful stuff. Um, it's taken us through Jesus' baptism, right? We started there, the kickoff event for Jesus' ministry, where he heard his father tell him how much he loved him. Clear as day in front of all kinds of people. I love you. You're mine. And I'm proud of you. And the same, the same voice rings today. Every single one of you, that's true. Even if you're not sure of it yet. Even if you don't buy it yet. It doesn't doesn't bother him. Owen did not know that I loved him on day one. Owen knew that he was cold and wet and needed some food. But I loved him like crazy. My little frog. You know? If, if, If you are not sure where you're at with God yet, that's fine. He is crazy about you. 100%. Um, then Luke took us to Jesus' prayer life, which is a direct outflow of our confidence in the Father's love for us. How you pray to God, how much you pray, how often you pray, the kind of things you pray about, tells you of what you think God thinks about you and what kind of relationship you think He wants to have with you, what kind of relationship you think He, he welcomes from you. They're, they're directly related. Then last night, Luke took us to the most important decision you can make in life. There is no greater, greater decision. The second greatest is who you're going to marry. That is the second most important decision you will ever make in your life. Who you're going to marry. The first one is, will you follow me? Will you say yes to the come follow me uh, invitation of Jesus? Um, and you can't get away from that in Luke. It's all over the book of Luke. We couldn't do a series on Luke's themes and not include Jesus' invitation to follow him. 
You cannot get away from that in Luke. He, Jesus is the great inviter in Luke. And it's, 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 what, it's just what he does. And here's the deal. Last night, if you did make that kind of decision for the first time, you know who you are. Would you tell somebody about it? Would you tell somebody? Don't, don't put it in a jar and screw the lid on. Let somebody know. Tell your core leader. Tell somebody on staff. Hey, just so you know, that was me. I, I, I prayed that last night. I, so I wanted to tell you. Because the angels are throwing a rave in your honor. They are partying like crazy. And God is thrilled. What is the story that Jesus tells when somebody comes home? The dad sprints to him, which an old man never does. His flashy white legs flying everywhere. Totally not appropriate for an old gentleman to do. Grabs the guy and says, blows a whistle. Everybody, party now. The best food. Kill it. Eat it. Let's get wild. That's the kind of God we serve. You do realize this, right? That's the kind of God we serve. The image of the, of, of the kingdom coming in all its fullness one of the great pictures is a banquet with plenty of wine. I should not have said that. That's a lot of questions. But it's in the Bible. It's in there. I can't get away from it. It's in the scriptures. Talk to me later if you have questions about alcohol. And I'll ask Brandon what I should say. So, if that was you last night, <laughs> thank you, Lord. If that was you last night, would you tell somebody? Because it is not the kind of news that you just kind of, you know, sweep under the carpet. That is a big deal, you guys. Your life is forever changed from last night on. And that's worth celebrating. You graduate, you throw a party. You, these are momentous events. And they, you know, it doesn't have to be like an attention-drawing thing, you know. It's not about that. It's about drawing our attention to Jesus. But let somebody know. Because they want to help walk through this with you. If you have decided to follow Jesus... You have suddenly made yourself a threat, this is a crosshairs, a threat to the enemy. Okay? And we want to help you. Um, I'm leaving, so I can't help you very much. You can email me or something, we can talk. But somebody here who's living with you, who's walking life with you, who's maybe asked some of the same questions you've asked, you're asking, who's going to face some of the same early struggles that you faced, walk through it with somebody, people. This is a, we, we are not designed to be Lone Star anything. We are, the, riding solo is not how we were designed to be. Not how we were designed to be. God says that it is not good for man to be alone. We are made to be communal people. Okay? So let it, let it, let it out. Tell somebody. Um, so tonight, tonight we are going to look a little bit more closely at what that decision that, that, that some of us have already made already, some of us made last night for the first time, what that decision requires of us. I think we are in danger sometimes of, especially in the Christian West, of um, making discipleship something tame. Making following Jesus something that is, it looks like everybody else, but just with focus on top. My life looks like just like everybody else's at, 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 at whatever college I'm at, but I just do kind of focus on the side or, or on top. Even maybe focus might be where I spend most of my time, but my, the rest of my life looks just like everything else. And we're in danger of that. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, uh, a Lutheran theologian in Germany during the, the, the reign of Hitler, the Third Reich, 
lived in a culture where the entire culture was like that. It was, I'm a cultural person with church on top. Well, when the culture went south, when the culture went Nazi, the church, people who call themselves disciples, went Nazi with church on top. That's all it was. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this lone voice crying out for, crying out against cheap grace. The kind of grace that says, sweet, I'm a Christian. Nice. What's next? Um, and he died for it. He was hung something like three days before his camp was liberated. Modern martyr in 1945. The year the war ended. It's just it's an amazing story. You should read about him. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about where bon- Bonhoeffer's ideas came from tonight. So let's pray, huh? And then we'll get to uh, the text that Luke has for us tonight. Jesus, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us tonight in whatever, wherever we're at. Jesus, I pray that, that your inspired words through Luke uh, would lift off the page and uh, uh, sink into our minds and hearts right where they need to sink in. And I depend on you for that. Um, this whole weekend is an absolute waste of time unless your spirit makes things stick, unless your spirit starts tattooing these things on our hearts and brains. And the the sweet thing is, is you have promised your spirit's presence here. You have promised your company with us. So I pray that you'd be at work. Counselor, teacher, comforter, Lord, would you speak to us? We depend on you for that. So we'll go to your word, and we'll chew on it, and we'll listen for you. And I pray that you'd affect us, Lord. pray all this in your name, because that's what what it means when we pray things that we think you would like us to pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Tonight's story from Luke's epic is uh, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? It's the first stage of Jesus' passion, which is the church history term for Jesus' march towards and eventual death upon the cross. You guys, if, if any of you have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, less than 18 times, um, I couldn't watch it more than once. I think I probably should watch it again. But to see the man who has saved my life suffer like that, I don't think I need to see that again. But it's, it's, a, it's worth watching. Um, anyway, the passion of, of the Christ is, is sort of the, the, the catalog of what the Catholic Church, what church history has called his passion. It starts where the passion officially starts and ends where the passion officially ends. So when you hear people talk about the passion of the Christ, they're actually talking about a section from the four Gospels of Jesus' um, uh, prayer in Gethsemane, trial, death, resurrection. That's the, when people say the passion of the Christ, that's what they're talking about. So this is the first sort of um, chapter in the book that is the passion of, of, of the Christ. Let's read it, huh? It's in Luke 22, starting in verse 39, and it goes till verse 47 is the text that we're going to read tonight. We won't read the whole, the whole passion. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And we'll, we'll talk later about why that, was, why that was usual for Jesus to do. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. And this is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, 
He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he, wo- when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted with sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now, in my own life, I've read this passage before. You know, I, I, it, because I, I grew up in a Christian home, I'd read this a number of times. And I found it an easy one to kind of breeze through. Um, I usually want to get to the trial and execution because that's where the action is, right? That's where the, the blood starts to fly, and that's kind of what we're into. Sometimes I wonder, if they brought back the Roman Colosseum, how many people would be that offended? Sometimes I wonder. Watching people die for entertainment. Hmm. And this garden scene was really, for me, was just kind of an intro to the, to the main event, the main action. Kind of a prologue to the real story that I wanted to get to, where Jesus dies for our sins and, and yada yada. Um, but as I studied it more intently, and spent some more time reading it, more than just once or twice through, I found that it is actually jammed with action, and jammed with drama. And I think it's important that we don't miss that. A lot of us are familiar with the rest of the Passion story. But I think a lot of us kind of hurdle this little thing, and then we get to the real action. Judas shows up, and then things, you know, kind of spark, kick off. But I do not think we can understand Jesus' passion or the life of discipleship that he invites us to unless we understand this, this season of prayer, this little episode of Jesus' prayers. Okay, so that's why I think it's crucial to talk about it. So, um, as is always good to do when you're studying Scripture like this, let's color the story in a bit, right? Get some context, get, really get ourselves into the drama. Excuse me. So let's start with the context. The question we always ask ourselves is where in the broader story that Luke is telling us does this episode on the Mount of Olives fit in this particular garden on that mount? Um, Jesus has just come from the text we read for communion. Okay, He's just come from celebrating a different kind of Passover meal with his disciples. And we call it the Last Supper, right? We We just read about it for communion. And he's just, the reality is, he's just dropped a lot of bad news on them. A lot of bad news. John goes into the most detail about what that is. But basically, Jesus spent the meal speaking cryptically and confusingly about his own impending death. And now he would never again share this meal with them until the kingdom had fully come. Which was confusing for them in the first place. A lot of, a lot of, a whole, throughout the whole story, they keep saying, so, does that happen now? No, no, okay, my bad. And then later in the story, so, like now? No, oh, my bad, my bad, sure. It happens all the time. And so they're already confused about this whole thing. And then, then Jesus says, man, it's not coming, it's not coming, it's not coming. And then Jesus says, I will never drink this meal with you again until that happens. Jeez. And when, when is that supposed to? Okay, sorry, my bad. They just do that. He talked about one of them betraying him. I mean, you've had a great time at camp. You've been living in cabins together. You know, stretch, stretch living together, traveling together into three years, right? With these, 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 these 12 homeboys who, are, who have been through, I mean, they've, they've walked through the rain together. They've, they've, some of them probably fell into some mud puddles that they picked each other up out of it in the rain. They've, they've sailed together. They've, they've fried fish together. How many guys go camping together? That's a blast. Think of like a three-year camping trip. In addition to that there was this message that Jesus kept preaching that was just 
resonating in their lives. And they were like, this, we, this is it. This is, and we were on the front lines of the best news that's ever happened. This is sweet. And at this meal, where Jesus is super like solemn and glum and saying these confusing, cryptic things, he also says, one of you 12 is going to stab me in the back. And the whole table goes, you know, are you serious? One of us? We've been through thick and thin together. One of the twelve will stab me, in the, stab me in the back. He even went so far to say, not only to Peter in particular, but to all of them, that he anticipated that really, when the rubber met the road, when push came to shove, every single one of them would abandon him. How'd you feel if your best friend, if your hero said to you, you are going to leave me in my mo- moment of most need. Thanks, Jesus. It's a real upper. Awesome. High five. <laughs> that would suck. Just, oh, thanks. It tells you what you think about me. Think I'm some kind of flake or whatever. I was totally right, but, you know. So, it's after this kind of dinner together that they walk out of Jerusalem up onto the Mount of Olives to a private garden called the Garden of Gethsemane, which isn't named in Luke, but it's named in Matthew and Mark. Luke just says they went to a certain garden. (coughs) Matthew and Mark make it more explicit. Now, I just want to give you an idea of the physical location of the Mount of Olives. Here's a picture of Jerusalem, okay? The old city limits, if you will. Um, and, And there's the Mount of Olives on the top right. You see it there? Can you guys read that text okay? Over here, it's going to be on your top right as well. You see it? Yeah? Okay. I won't run over to it and point to it then. Now, um, Jerusalem was a densely populated city. Um, It's not like Dallas. I drove out of Dallas um, from the airport, and everything in Texas is, like, spread out. Everything is, you have to go, like, it's far, like, expansive. Is this true? Okay. So think, not Dallas, think, like, crammed, 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 busy, 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 especially at certain times of the year when Jews from everywhere come in. I mean, the, 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 sorry? If you've been in New York City, certain parts of it, it would be a little bit like that. Absolutely. Um, yes. Absolutely parts of London. Let's just name 20 big cities right now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Those are all true. Those all, those all fit. Now, because, because this was true, because this was true, that, that, that Jerusalem was such a crammed, such a crammed, densely populated city, that anything like backyards or, or sort of front gardens were unheard of. Nobody had those things. And if they did, it meant you were like super rich. Um, now, because the city was so crammed, even these folks didn't have backyards or their houses. So those who could afford it would keep gardens at different places outside the city, but nearby. So this is the, the Mount... Is that a Mount of Olives? I think so. Now, today, like a modern picture. So the picture is basically taken from someone standing in Jerusalem, looking out up onto the Mount of Olives. So, so the wealthy people would have their, their homes near their places of business, near the markets, near the places where they functioned. And if they were wealthy enough, they could afford to buy a plot of land, basically buy a backyard, somewhere else. Okay? So, and one such location was the Mount of Olives. 
And it was this large hill just outside the city. So the, the reality is what, what, what's likely to have happened is that one of Jesus' wealthy followers, because he had those, one of Jesus' wealthy followers, which, which is interesting, just quick side note, he tells the rich ruler to sell everything he has and give to the poor. And yet, he has other wealthy followers. Hmm. So maybe, you know, that text isn't meant literally for every single person who ever reads it. Maybe for you that will be exactly what Jesus wants you to do. Maybe he will want you to sell everything you have, give stuff to the poor, and figure out what to do next. What does following Jesus look like for me? I talked to one gal. Where is she? Former NFL football player and his wife sold. Yeah, sold what they had and started, went down to Mexico, started an orphanage. Actually, they didn't sell any of it. They gave it away, didn't they? Sometimes that's what Jesus will say. For others, the point is, everything has to be on the table with Jesus. There are no conditions to following him. Everything has to be on the table. So he may tell you, you can keep all your money. Just use it for the kingdom. Use it this way. So some wealthy folks had a garden. And, I'm sure, and they must have offered it to Jesus on the Mount of Olives as sort of his campsite or a kind of headquarters for his ministry while he's in, so he could come and go as he ministered to Jerusalem. The end of Jesus' life is a lot of coming and going from Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's interacting with... He's, he's basically, for Luke, he's moving closer and closer and closer to the center of Judaic, Judaic power. Uh, the, he's dealing with the big boys now. These aren't sort of, you know, uh, uh, backwoods ambassadors. These aren't sort of outside. He's dealing with the, the core of power, of temple power. And so he's, at the end of Jesus' life, he's back and forth from, from in, in and out of Jerusalem all the time. And so because it's not very far, you see the temples on the, on the right side of, of, of Jerusalem as well. The Mount of Olives is right there. So it's a, it's a convenient place for Jesus to sort of set up camp, if you will, with his disciples. Um, it would have been an excellent place of peace and quiet um, and, and not a difficult commute for somebody who's walking everywhere he goes or riding on a donkey once in a while, which does happen on the first time in. This also explains how Judas knew where Jesus would be that night. If this is regular for Jesus to do, it says at the beginning, as was his habit, as was usual, he would have known Jesus' habit of withdrawing there at the end of the day for some downtime, for some debrief time, for some prayer. I mean, if you guys go on mission trips, sometimes it's nice just to have some team time, right? You pull off, uh, like we'll send you guys a spring break trip, and uh, one of the days they'll probably just pull off and just go do something kind of social with themselves to just kind of whew, recoup a little bit. Because it's, it's draining, it's, it's, it's giving, you know? There's a reason that, that God created us with this wonderful idea of a Sabbath. You go ahead and work every day of your life. I'll take a vacation day once a week. Thank you very much. So says God. I'm in. I'll take it. Vacation day every week. So that's the kind of thing that Jesus would probably would have done with his disciples. Okay? So back to the text. He came out of the Passover meal. Wait, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, back. He comes out of the Passover meal. Um... As was his custom, he goes up to the Mount of Olives, disciples follow him. Which is a good thing for disciples to do, yes? They follow. That's what happens. They arrive at the garden, and Jesus tells them to pray that they will not fall into temptation. It's interesting to note here that Jesus' command to his disciples is an echo of what we talked about earlier. He taught them to pray this way. So you notice that Jesus tells his disciples, he teaches his disciples things more than one time, right? It's like what we talked about in the gospel, uh, what a gospel is as genre class. Jesus is a good teacher. How many of your teachers teach you in like fourth grade 
one concept, one time, and then you move on and you build on it. And then you never come back to it again. No good teacher does that. Repetition is how we learn as human beings. We build grooves in our brain that our, that our, that our learning remembers. Right? You repeat stuff. That's what Jesus is doing here. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus is basically saying, remember that prayer? Pray that way tonight, right now. You've got to pray that tonight, right now. Then Jesus goes off by himself to pray. Scripture says he went, to, he went a stone's throw away. You know, people have asked, how far is that? Well, pick up a stone, chuck it. That's how far he went. That's all Luke's trying to say. It doesn't take science to like, well, I have ten paces. I don't know. Just throw a stone. Throw a stone. That's how far he was. Then Luke says that he kneels down. He kneels down and he begins to pray. Now, it's interesting that Luke would include this detail. That Luke would say that he knelt down and prayed. Here's why. What's interesting about this is that the common way for a Jewish man to pray, especially a respected Jewish rabbi, was standing up with his head tipped back toward heaven. That's how most Jewish rabbis most commonly prayed. If you look at other places in the gospel, that's primarily how Jesus prays. It's how the religious men around him pray. So the fact that Luke would include, would be careful to include this level of detail about the posture of how Jesus was praying in the garden this night is a big deal. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? And why, right before this, does Jesus tell his disciples of all the things he could have told them to do, of all the things he could have asked them to pray for, he asked them to pray that they will not fall into temptation. They arrive at the garden after a very heavy, dark in tone, confusing meal. And Jesus turns to his friends and says, on top of everything else he said, pray that you don't fall into temptation tonight. And then walks away from them and throws himself to his knees and begins to pray. You're in the drama now. You're there. The disciples, you've got to remember this, the disciples do not know what's coming. This is all new to them. This is the first time this has ever happened to them. We've read this before. We know where this is going. We know why Jesus is behaving the way he's behaving. They don't. They are confused. What is he talking about? What is going on here? And what is the matter with Jesus? He's a mess. What is his deal? Nobody in the story around Jesus knows. So then Luke takes us to Jesus' prayer. And again, he opens by calling God Father. It's the way he has referred to God his entire ministry, all the way back to his baptism. He is still hanging on to that. He is still hanging on to those words from his Father. You are mine. I love you. And I'm proud of you. His relationship with his Father is still solid. They're still close. It's important for us to read this entire text, this entire prayer, this entire episode in the garden has to be read in the midst of Jesus' confidence in his Father's love for him. He opens the, the prayer by saying, I know that you love me. I know that I am yours. I know that you are proud of me. Then he says, if you, who I know all these things about, how you feel towards me, if you are willing, take this cup from me. 
Now, if we'd had more time, we could have looked up the story about Jesus and the leper in Luke 5. There's a leprous man in Luke 5.12 who runs through a crowd, dives at Jesus' feet, and says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. When you see phrases repeated in the Gospels, pay attention. Pay attention. It's markers that the Gospel writers leave behind for us. We are meant to think, oh yeah, the leprous guy. He said the same thing. Now, in the garden, the words of a pleading leprous man, begging God for a miracle, are in the mouth of our Savior. Father, if you are willing. And what's he asking for? Take this cup from me. Now, there is no cup in the garden sitting in front of Jesus. There's no cup full of anything. So then what is Jesus talking about? What in the world is Jesus talking about? Now again, we, we kind of know how the story goes. And so we kind of get a sense of what he must be talking about. But when you look at the imagery that comes from cup in the whole history of the Old Testament, when you pack all that into what Jesus is asking for, it makes it thicker. It makes it, you, you enter the story deeper. Do that. When you come across something in Scripture, well, what's he mean by cup? Why would, of all the things, he, of all the ways he could have put it, why would he put it that way? Of all the ways he could have said what he said, why would he put it that way? Ask yourself that question whenever you read the Scriptures because the Bible, the, Jesus is speaking and the Gospel recorders are recording things on purpose. Pay attention. Luke is a precise and excellent historian, but he's an even better theologian. He's trying to teach us something. Jesus is the same way. He's the smartest guy ever. So when you see cup, think, why cup? Of all the things he could have said, why would he say cup? Here's why. Again, it's Old Testament. It's from it's Old Testament. Psalm 11.6 says this. On the wicked... The Lord will rain coals of fire and sulfur. A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Jeremiah 25.15 says this, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah speaking, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. The cup is a consistent Old Testament image of the wrath of God which will be poured out on the wicked in judgment. We don't have time to talk about the, the myth, the ridiculous fallacy that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. That is not true. God is as gracious in the Old Testament as He is in the, old, as in the, in the New he is as wrathful in the New Testament as he is in the Old. You stay the same through the ages. It's a fact. Talk to me afterwards if you have questions. It's an important thing to realize. So this Old Testament imagery of wrath, that's what the cup is. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus is a very well-studied man. Very well-studied. And, 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 and don't think like, oh, he was God. He knew the whole Bible already. He wrote the thing. That's not how it works. That's not how, that's not how incarnation works. He was an actual man too, you know. 
fully man and fully God. That's what we believe. Somehow in some mysterious, I don't get it. But it's true. So he is an educated man. He has studied. He has read. He has prayed. He has familiarized himself with the Old Testament. So when he says cup, that's what he's thinking. He is familiar with the, the consistent image in the Old Testament of God's wrath being poured out on the wicked. Which means he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he asks for a reprieve. Get this. Jesus asks God, his Father, if he can get out of saving the world. Daddy, will you let me get out of this? Jesus is pleading, please, there must be another way. Don't make me go through with this. Now, how does that make you feel? That our Savior was asking not to go through with what was necessary for our salvation. Think about it. I was upset. It made me uncomfortable. I thought Jesus loved me. That's what the song said when I sang it a million times when I was a kid. Doesn't everything that he taught me about himself tell me that he loved me enough to go through with it? That he loved me enough to stay on that cross and and, and to walk up that hill and to, 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 to go through the whippings. That it's all because he loved me. Then what the heck is this all about? You have to ask these questions as you read your Bible. God is not afraid of your questions. Well, I think, I think, and I, and I buy this, and thankfully, way smarter people than me buy this. Commentators, etc. It's a moment where Luke is bringing us in touch with the 100% true humanity of Jesus. How much like us he really was. I think too often, I know for myself, I don't know if you do this, but I think too often I chalk Jesus up to being the first century equivalent of Superman. Okay? Maybe some of you do this. He's from another place. And that gives him special powers that none of us could ever have. Yeah? Gravity doesn't work on him, so Superman, so just like Superman, he can fly. Jesus walks on water. Right? It's because he's Superman. He's like the first century equivalent of Superman. But for one thing, putting Jesus into that category of Superman means that we could never do the things he does. Even though he says... The exact opposite. You will do even greater things than these. So he can't be Superman. It also puts God, treating Jesus as Superman, puts him, puts his father, puts the whole Trinity at a distance from our suffering, from our pain. Because we think, you're God. You don't have any idea what it's like for mortal me to suffer. You're Superman. You don't know what it's like for those who actually sink when we try to walk on the water. 
You're the super healer. You don't know what it's like to watch your family member die of cancer. Jessica and I lost a baby this summer. Superman doesn't know what that's like. Superman doesn't know pain. Superman doesn't engage pain. He just flies around and he's, he's above it all. And he's super powered and he's distant and he's high and above it all. He doesn't engage with pain and suffering. Legitimate pain and suffering. And Luke says, that is not the God we serve. That is not the Jesus we follow. And it is not the Jesus who says, come follow me. Jackson was a miracle. Jackson was God's, um, well, for Jessica, it was, a, it, was a, it was a beautiful surprise. You're not supposed to get pregnant that fast after you have a miscarriage. Hebrews 5.7 agrees. says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I did that this summer to the one who was able to save him from death. Hebrews 4.14 says, Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. So we, because Jesus is our high priest, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect was tested as we are. Superman does not ask me to follow him. A man who faced death, who faced the ultimate what sacrifice of what God was calling him to do, says, come follow me. reality is Jesus was just plain human scared. Like every saint who's ever faced death, every martyr. One of the greatest martyr stories in the, in the early church is of a, of a guy named Ignatius. He's a, he's a marvelous bishop in, an, in a city on the eastern side of the empire, and he's called to Rome to get his head chopped off. And there's, there's people in Rome who have met Jesus, and they've gotten serious about their faith, and they're powerful. They're in the government. And so they could have made a move to, 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 sort, to bribe people so that this, this Ignatius guy wouldn't get killed. Ignatius sends them a letter and says, please don't do that, because it would be false. I have said certain things that are true in my city, and Rome has said, the penalty for this is death. Please do not bribe anybody to get me out of this. By the way, I'm sending you this letter because I'm scared. And I'm afraid that when I get there, I will beg with you and plead with you to bribe people so I don't have to get my head chopped off in the circus. I'm sending you this letter so that you, if I beg you when I get there, that you will stand firm and let me die so that I can be faithful. As my Lord was faithful. Jesus is not a sadist. Jesus is not a sadist. He does not celebrate suffering. So many Christians, well-meaning Christians, take that verse in James, rejoice in trials, and they, they, they don't, that's not what James is saying. James is not saying, I get to suffer, yes, I'm thrilled about that. I can't wait to get my skin peeled off. I can't wait to be tarred and hung by my neck in Nero's court and set on fire as a candle for his dinner parties. That sounds awesome. Sign me up. Well-meaning Christians told me and Jessica, rejoice in this suffering. Rejoice. I will not rejoice that we lost a baby. 
I will rejoice because I have a God who knows exactly how I feel and who promises, sorry, I don't, this is, <clears throat> and who promises that that is not the end of the story. That death is not the end of the story. For everybody else out there on your campuses, you guys, who does not know Jesus, death is the end of the story. It's over. Jesus, it was not thrilling. Jesus did not have a death wish. The reason he's so glum at the Last Supper, the reason he's so ominous, it is not thrilling for him to die. And certainly, certainly not to die in the way he anticipated. In the way he knew was the most likely way he was going to die. We, people wonder how much Jesus, you know, how, did, how, did, how in the world does, does God's full divinity and man's full humanity dwell together? And so people ask all kinds of questions. You know, what did Jesus know ahead of time? And did he know that it would take, you know, that he wasn't actually going to die? They were going to come break his legs. He would be able to give his life up before they got there. Did he know, you know, did he know, you know, hook, line, sinker, everything that was going to happen? Or did he just, was he just smart enough to see it coming? I mean, there's, it, doesn't, it doesn't damage his godness or his humanness in either direction. It's, it's okay to be unaware of exactly how the mind of Jesus was working because that, to be honest, is a marvelous mystery. I'm going to ask him when, he gets, when, he gets there, when I get there. I'm going to ask Mary, did you ever just spank Jesus? <laughs> was he ever, like, just defiant? Because he's supposed to be without sin, but what, what in the world is an infant without sin like? I certainly do not know. <laughs> anyway, but he anticipated Jesus does love you. He does love me. And we'll see in a second that he loves us. He loves you. He loves me more than he loves himself. We'll get there. But we also have to hold this mysterious tension that he was just as much a man as any of us. And I think the intensity of what he saw coming would make any sane and healthy human being ask if there was any way it could be avoided. You see, Jesus was a Jew in first century Palestine. Rome was in charge. They had just arrived 60 years earlier. It wasn't pretty. Jesus grew up around crucifixion. He had probably heard men scream for hours on those crosses. He had grown up around Roman brutality. He had probably seen criminals whipped by the Romans. He knew it was coming. On more than one occasion, he probably watched it. Probably heard the, the whistle of the whip through the air, the smack as it hit the back, and the groans and the wails of people who were getting whipped. At one point in a, in a, in a revolution post-Jesus, which Jesus wouldn't have known, but doesn't mean it couldn't have happened earlier too, the Romans lined a main street with crucified people to remind the Jews as they came and went out of the city, this is what happens when you raise your fist at us, just so you know. And crucifixion, you die by suffocation. You know this, right? You don't bleed to death. You don't lose your mind. You, you suffocate. So it's a slow death. For as long as you can hold yourself up on your legs, you're fine. And you're holding yourself up by a pin through your ankles or your feet. So if you can withstand the pain to push, 
and you live for that long. Eventually, you're exhausted. And you're, through exhaustion, your muscles give out. And that's what kills you. You can't breathe like this. Jesus saw this. He knew it. That this is, okay, if I'm going to die, if the Jews are going to kill me, they're probably going to take me the Roman way. I know that's, that's going to be me up there. Father, can you please get me out of this? This is going to be awful. I know it's going to be awful. Please, please, please get me off the hook. Please don't make me do this. Mm. Jesus already knew in his own ministry the violence of the mob mentality. Remember back in his hometown? They take him to a cliff. They threaten to throw him off. Luke doesn't tell us how it doesn't happen. He just says that Jesus could walk through the crowds and went away. Some people think there was like a magic moment where they all kind of like stopped and just walked through, you know. Some people think it was a tussle and they kind of lost sight of him and he kind of ducks out, ducks out and you know, gets out through the crowds and gets to the hills. Luke's not exactly clear. We don't know why. It's not like he says, and the crowd parted peacefully and he walked through serenely. It's not in there. Jesus is aware of the intensity of the excruciating physical and emotional pain that's coming. But here's the deal. He also knows the spiritual pain that's coming. Now, it's dangerous to separate these two things, spiritual and physical, because they're linked together in our humanity. But on the one hand, Jesus is legitimately terrified of the physical ordeal that's coming. He's afraid of what his nerves will be telling him as certain things happen to him. But as we see in his prayer, in referring to the cup of God's wrath of judgment, we know that he is also anticipating the intangible darkness of the spiritual ordeal that awaited him, the looming terror of God's abandonment and judgment. Or I should say, God's judgment by abandonment. One commentator writes, the whole shadow of the cross with its spiritual darkness and desolation then began to rest upon him. This, along with the physical torment that awaited him, is what he was asking God, his Father, to take away from him. And then his prayer progresses. Yet, Yet, not my will, but yours be done. We're back to the Lord's Prayer, you guys. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has spent the entire context of his life and ministry living this way. Living out this commitment to devotion, to aligning himself with the will of his Father. And this response, this, this response to what Jesus is facing of, yet not my will, but yours be done. That response is nothing new to Jesus. He has done it time and time again throughout his ministry. At one point he says, my food, my very sustenance, what keeps me going, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Another place he says, I do only what I see the Father doing. It's not a new idea for him. 
But in the context of his agony in the garden, it's profound. It's kind of reached its climax. The devil never appears in this story. Never appears. But the narrative cues and the echoes of the temptation to waver in his commitment to what he knew he needed to do sounds an awful lot like the desert temptation right after Jesus' baptism. I don't think it's a far stretch when Mel Gibson starts that passion scene with the devil actually there in sort of personified. It's not in any of the stories. I don't think it's a far stretch. Whether he was there or not in person, I don't even know how that works. But it sounds an awful lot like the way and the things that the devil was asking him to do. The different ways he was trying to get Jesus to jump off the train of his mission. And I think that's why, and commentators think, that's why Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they will not fall into temptation because they are about to be tempted to waver in their commitment to what they know the Father has called them to do, which is to follow Jesus. The transfiguration. uh, uh, Peter, James, and John hear a voice. It's a similar voice. God opens the sky. This time he speaks to the disciples. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So when Jesus says, come follow me, they say, okay. That, that big voice in the sky said so. I'll, I will do what he says. He turned Jesus into a glowing, wow, I'll, whatever you say, man. What's a disciple do? They follow their teacher. What happens directly after this story in the garden? They stop following. They abandon him. The disciples abandon their teacher who they pledge their lives to. They fall into temptation. Satan knows when the stakes are highest, you guys. He knows just when to strike. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he challenges the very truth that Jesus just heard from the sky about who he was. The episode, again, we can't get through all of Luke, but the episode right after the baptism scene, right after God tells Jesus who he is and what he thinks of him and how proud he is of him, the devil assaults it right away, takes him out into the desert for temptation, and the devil says, if you really are the Son of God, he starts at skepticism. And here again, in this story in the garden, we hear Jesus in his prayer, tempted to waver, tempted to not allow his will to align with that of his Father. But where the disciples fail after this story, the second half of Jesus' prayer is where Jesus succeeds. The first half of the prayer is a temptation to not do his Father's will. Please don't make me do this. Please don't make me do this. But the second half of the prayer is submission. But not what I want what you want. Father, who loves me, whose I am, who is proud of me. Not what I want, but what you want. Now what is so crucial to pay attention to in this story, one of the reasons Luke records it for us, cosmic salvation, the hope of every person who's ever been born and ever will be born until Jesus comes back. 
cosmic salvation hinged on Jesus' submission to God in spite of his own desires. Salvation hinged on Jesus' submission to God in spite of his own desires in that moment. I think this speaks directly to our understanding of what it means to determine God's direction for our lives once we decide to follow Jesus. Both big picture vocationally and in the day-to-day living. Last night we talked about the idea of giving up everything to follow Jesus. But there's a popular idea circling around American Christianity today that the best way for you to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life is to figure out what you're passionate about. What excites you, what invigorates you, what fulfills you. And there's a, there's a measure of truth to that because God did create us individually and there are many things that He wants you to do that are particular to you in your lifetime. There are, there are gifts and abilities and strengths and weaknesses that He put in you that will facilitate what He's designed for you to do in this world. That's true. That's a true statement. But following your passions, following what you're passionate about, following do, what, what comes naturally to you, must always be done in the context of Jesus' words. Not what I want, but what you want. Too many people say, here's who I am, here's what I like, here's what I'm good at, so to glorify God, I'm going to do something with those things. But Jesus' posture and prayer in the garden reveals that there must be an assumption that comes before any of that. Our first statement must be, Father, I'll do anything before we decide to do something. You have to be willing to do anything before you decide to do something. Again, it's okay to take stock of who you are, what you're good at, even to think through what you might be created to do. But that has got to come after we have submitted ourselves to doing what God might ask of us. Submission is the solution to cheap grace. Submission is the solution to cheap grace. Because God may very well not have created us to do something we do... Wait, I'm sorry, I messed that up. Yeah, yeah, here we go. God may have made you to do something you were not passionate about doing. Did you ever think about that? God may have plans for you that you don't really want to do. Thank you very much. So if all you do when you think about, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Oh, I'm just going to do what I'm good at. Do what I'm excited about. To His glory. It's a great idea, but you don't start there as a disciple. Jesus doesn't start there. Jesus starts at, not what I want, but what you want. Whatever comes next, I will do. You will often be surprised how often the the next thing that comes from God where He tells you what He wants you to do, as you look back on doing it for a little while, you're like, man, this is perfect. You're a genius. I would never have picked campus ministry for myself. 
I didn't want to do campus ministry. My mom and dad do campus ministry. I'm a firstborn. I shoot off in my own direction. I'm not going to just do what mommy and daddy do. That's not me. I'm not a mimic. I, I don't do things just because they're the cool thing to do. I want to kind of do my own thing. God had other plans. I would not have picked this. I love this. It's great. It, it's also very hard. I don't want to make it sound like a cakewalk. Um, Travis was right. There's heartache. You love people. Sometimes the people you love go through hard times, and sometimes it's of their own making. Life would be so much easier if I didn't love anybody. Seriously, if I didn't care about you guys, man, that would be simpler. Wouldn't be life. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this series, in this story, Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is. He is living out the way he taught his disciples to pray. Let's go further in the text. As we read further in Luke's account of this garden scene, an angel comes and ministers to Jesus after he surrendered his will to his Father. You realize that Jesus has just said, "But whatever you want me to do, I will do." And an angel comes. And it says it strengthened him. But what's really odd is that after the angel ministers to him, Jesus seems to get worse. You ever realize that? You pay attention to this story like that? Jesus gets worse after the angel shows up. Some angel's getting fired. (laughs) But I think that's because I expected the angel to fix everything, to take away fear, to take away anguish. If that's what the angel came to do, then he definitely did fail. But I think the angel came to give Jesus strength to keep praying. Notice that after the angel gives him strength, the anguish isn't removed. But Jesus, with his renewed strength, prays more earnestly. Last night, through Luke, Jesus promised that leaving everything to follow him would be 100% worth it. You will not regret the decision to throw your lot in with Jesus. You will not regret giving him everything to follow him. You will not regret it. Jesus promises you. If Jesus is a liar, then you will regret it. He is not a liar. You will not regret it. You will not wish you hadn't. But tonight, he wants to remind us through Luke that it will not be, and he has never promised it will be 100% easy. In fact, he has promised it will be the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. But I leave you my peace. Not even God, not even God the Father, our loving Father, whose we are, who is proud of us and who loves us will shield us from what it may cost to follow him. In fact, this moment is so intense for Jesus that he prays so earnestly that his sweat, Luke tells us, is like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There's some debate whether Luke meant that the drops of blood were as large as drops of blood or if the sweat was dripping like blood from a wound which is a particularly accurate metaphor for the intensity of this battle with temptation, I think. Some people think Jesus was actually sweating blood, that blood was coming through the pores in his forehead. 
which is a documented physiological experience. It's been known to happen when someone or something like an animal or something is under severe physical stress that the capillaries in the skin burst and blood ends up leaking out the pores. Remember, Luke's a doctor. He likes to be precise. Either way, Luke wants us to be graphically aware, graphically aware of what an ordeal this is for our Lord and Savior. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how long Jesus prayed like this. We don't know. We know it was at least less time than a night, right? We don't know how long it was. Was it a couple minutes? Was it a couple hours? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us that kind of detail. He just writes, when he got up from prayer, he returned to his disciples. So we know that he's at least physically strong enough to stand and walk the stone throw's distance back to his loyal friends. But he finds them all asleep. None of them are praying. Jesus knew that he was entering into a time of trial. He's just gone ten rounds with the temptation to flee, to not conform his will to the will of his Father. And he knew that the same temptation was about to overtake his loyal friends, yet they weren't praying. Luke says they fell asleep because of their grief, which makes sense, considering the dismal Passover meal they just celebrated. Celebrated, that's the wrong word. Went through, suffered through, or confused through. But Luke doesn't let the disciples get off the hook easily either. Jesus' rebuke is urgent. Why are you sleeping? And he repeats his original command. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Luke is very purposeful about how to show us how to handle times of trial when our will is competing with God's will. You pray. When you come to the time when following Jesus is rock hard, you've got to pray. And that's not a pat Christian Sunday school answer. Just pray about it. It is blood, sweat, terror, you pray. Pray, pray, pray. If you don't, you're in danger. If you are really struggling with whether or not to follow Jesus and you don't pray, you're in danger. But it's too late. While Jesus is still speaking to them, Judas approaches. And with him are the temple thugs who will take, him, take Jesus away to trial and to torture to death. Oh, that is the drama that lifts out of this text. So how would Jesus have us respond to this record of his suffering and submission to his Father? I think part of what we need to do is realize that everything after this, all the means of our salvation, happened because of this moment. Because of Jesus' decision to submit while he suffered in prayer, the world now has access to salvation. The rest of the passion happens because Jesus said, okay, I submit, I yield. Not what I want, but what you want. You notice that God doesn't smack Jesus across the face for asking him to get out of it? You notice that God does not smack any psalmist across the face 
for praying, pardon my French, what the hell, Lord? There are all kinds of psalms like that. God is not afraid of your questions. He is not afraid of your anguish. He's not threatened by your doubts. He's not mad at you when you feel like you're getting weak enough to back out. He sends an angel to Jesus to help him out. God will go to great lengths to give you everything you need to pray, to get strength, to get help. God is not mad at you when you're asking serious questions about your faith. Serious questions about what He's asking you to do. It's okay to do that. Scripture gives us that freedom. Jesus gives us, Jesus models that allowance from His Father to do. The question that a pastor asked of the congregation when I was in Kenya, Oscar Muriu, he's a Kikuyu, tall, probably 6'5", ebony, like really, really dark black. People in Kenya tease him for how black he is. <laughs> Wonderful man. He's a, 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 a changer in East Africa. He asked this question. And I, for, I remember it. I was, I was like in high school. And I remember it after reading this text. After he was preaching out of this text. He asked the question. When did Jesus die in his passion? When did Jesus die? I mean, I know when he stopped breathing, right? I know when his brain waves clicked off. But at what point in the hours of the passion that begin in Gethsemane and end at Jesus' physical death, at what point in this process did Jesus die? As you think about that, I want to tell you a couple stories. The first is about the Moravian missionaries. Church history is a marvelous thing. I, I'm in a church history class right now for my master's. I can't encourage you enough to read what you can about church history. Learn from our older brothers and sisters in the faith. It's a marvelous story. It's, 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 it's great stuff. This one's about the Moravian missionaries. The Moravians were a cluster of Christians in Eastern Europe whose expression of their devotion to Christ was primarily through missions in the 1700s. You guys think that like missionary work is, is challenging today. It requires sacrifice. It's hard. These Moravians traveled everywhere. 1700s, they sent missionaries to the Caribbean, North and South America. They sent people to the Arctic. And we know now there's not a lot of people down there. They didn't. They saw land. And they said, there might be people there. Let's go tell them about Jesus. Africa, East Asia. In the 1700s, the best way to travel, the most up-to-date, high-tech way to travel was a boat that may or may not make its destination. It took weeks, sometimes months, depending on where you were going. And forget email, phone calls, Skype, mail. Forget any of that. When you left, you were gone. You were absolutely gone. Unless you could get a message to a port and there happened to be a ship there that happened to be going to your destination home city. Highly unlikely. 
as the Moravian mission movement continued, they would try to send visitors to these mission fields and try to get them back within a couple of years so they could at least try to do some kind of report out to the Moravians back home. From what they could gather, they discovered that the average life expectancy for one of their missionaries overseas at that time was about eight months. And they knew this and kept sending people. I shouldn't say that. People kept saying, send me. I'll go. So after a while, the Moravian missionaries changed their luggage. They started packing their belongings in coffins, knowing full well that they were sailing away to their deaths. They weren't going to last longer than a year. Might as well pack the clothes and stuff in a coffin so I can get buried over there. All for the sake of aligning themselves with the will of their Father, with the will of Jesus their Lord, who said, Not my will, but yours be done. What's your will, Jesus? Go make disciples of all nations? Amen. I want to tell you another story about a college student. Well, wasn't a college student. He'd gone to college and was a recent grad. In the early 1860s, a young Belgian Catholic priest who had just finished seminary felt the call of God in his life in response to the gospel to become a missionary to the unreached people groups on the islands of Hawaii. It had recently been colonized. There were people, they found people there. They thought, hey, there's people there. Jesus needs to be there. So at the age of 24, he left his comfortable Belgian town and sailed for weeks to reach the Hawaiian Islands. Once there, he was assigned to a small community on the island of Oahu and served there for nine years. His name was Father Damien. Oh, yeah. That's the question I asked earlier. That picture on the left is a painting of Father Damien. The picture on the right is a movie that was made about Father Damien. Yes, that's Faramir on the right. I really encourage you to watch this movie. It's highly accurate, highly engaging. It's not one of those, like, tacky Christian films that they have, you know. I won't name any names, except for Left Behind. You know what I mean? We were like, ah, I'm watching this because I think I'm supposed to, not because it's any good. <laughs> this is a good movie. It's really a good movie, worth watching. When Father Damien was 33, he was called into a council held by the Catholic Bishop of Hawaii. The bishop explained to the council there was a group of people who lived on the north shore of the island of Molokai. The community had just been started, and as of yet, they had not been reached with the gospel, nor did they have a priest to minister in their midst. However, the bishop refused to assign anyone to this new parish, as was his custom. Usually, the, the bishop says, you go here, you go here, you go here, and you're a parish priest, you say, all right, that's my parish. Very, very hierarchical, organizational thing. Highly effective for getting stuff done. Not the greatest for doing whatever you want, but... That's how it worked. Instead, he asked the priests, the gathered priests, to pray about whether or not one of them would consider becoming this community's priest. Father Damien went home that evening to pray. And after much prayer, approached the bishop personally. 
and requested that he be sent to this new community. The bishop granted his request. The reason that the bishop had refused to assign anyone to this particular community, the reason that he had told the priests who had gathered that I'm not assigning anyone to this, I want you to go pray and see if God would have you go, is because at that time the Hawaiian islands were facing a growing health crisis. On a number of islands, there had been a sudden outbreak of leprosy, probably brought there by the colonizers. And the government had taken drastic measures to stem the outbreak. This is is pre-cure. In order to prevent the spread of this incurable and extremely infectious disease, the government had decided to ship all known lepers on the islands to one region on one island. And so lepers were sent to the north shore of the island of Molokai. The bishop knew that assigning anyone to the parish to be parish priest of this community was a death sentence. And on May 10th, 1873, Father Damien, who knew full well what he was getting into, hiked into the north shore of the island of Molokai and began his parish ministry. He built a chapel so people could come outside of the blazing sun that was painful on their open sores so they could worship. He dressed ulcers. He built homes and beds, built coffins and dug graves. This was his life for 11 years. One night he was pouring boiling water for his evening bath and some spilled onto his feet and he didn't feel it. And he knew he had contracted the fatal disease. Father Damien died of leprosy on April 15th, 1889, not yet 50 years old. He was buried on the island of Molokai. After he passed away, four people, inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ, came to the Catholic Bishop of Hawaii and said, Can we go? Can we take over? For Father, for Father Damien. One was another young priest from Belgium. One was a nun from New York. One was a recovering alcoholic Civil War soldier. And a nurse from Chicago offered their own lives to pick up where Father Damien left off so that those without hope could hear the gospel. I asked the question again when did those disciples really die? When did those disciples stop living for themselves with their own desires and goals and dreams in mind? At what point did they die? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says this, Christ died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. He says in Galatians of himself, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but as Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus died really in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't stop breathing. His heart didn't stop pumping in that garden. But he let himself go 
in the garden. He let go of himself in the garden. Everything that follows in Jesus' passion is simply a dedicated following through on what he decided in prayer with his father in the garden that night. Read the rest of the passion story. Jesus is resolved. So much so. You don't see any more wavering. So much so that when the most powerful man in all Judea, Pontius Pilate, top of the food chain, politically, he says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power to save you from death? Jesus says, in effect, you have nothing. I have submitted to the one and only one who truly has power. I have submitted to the one who put you there. It was because of his resolution in the garden while he prayed that he was able to keep walking forward towards the ordeal he knew was coming. He never backs down after the garden. He follows through. So I think the question that Jesus would ask us from this text is if you have decided to follow Jesus, have you also died? Are you still alive for your own sake? Or are you alive just for his sake? Last night we talked about giving up everything to follow Jesus. But do we live now having decided to follow? And some of you aren't there yet. Some of you have not decided to follow Jesus. Part of the reason I want to preach this, part of the reason that Luke puts this in here is that you need to know what you're getting into. The Christian life is not cotton candy and pansy fields. People tonight are laying on cold prison floors. In China, in Nigeria, in northern Sudan. People are still dying for this stuff. It is still costing what it's always cost. And whether or not you stop breathing or your heart stops pumping is not the point. Why are you alive? Christ died that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Do we live in such a way that our belongings are packed in our coffins? Do we live in such a way that it's not as important what happens to us anymore? Or do we still belong to ourselves? Do we still think that this life is ours to make the most of? To the glory of God and my two cars and my white picket fence my two-story house. Because what we've got to realize is that if we call ourselves disciples, some of you aren't there yet, you're still deciding, that's okay, keep deciding. You see if you think Jesus is worth it. You weigh up the other options on the table. Not following Jesus offers what? Think through, think it through. Use your brain. Jesus asks you to turn your brain on. 
Love the Lord your God. What's the greatest command in all the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Turn your brain on. If this is true, it'll stand up to any question you can ask it. He does not ask you to do something nonsensical, irrational. Blind faith is an idea that I don't think is in the Bible. I think thoughtful, inquisitive, exploring, and okay with a little bit of mystery, faith is what Scripture asks of us. You've got to decide if you are ready to die. And I know it's hard in theory because we live in America and here it's still legal to do what we do. I don't know how long that'll be the case. There's a lot of things that change. Some things happen fast. Some things take years. And maybe we'll see it coming a long way off. We go, whoa, we're starting to lose certain, certain, certain things that used to be safe to do. That's not the point. The point is, are you living now as if? Are you still calling the shots? Are you still in charge? Is your life like everybody else's, just with a little bit of Jesus on top? Jesus knew exactly what he was foreshadowing when he said, he or she who would be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. Some commentators wonder that they had passed a cross on the road and there was a dead body hanging on it. And that might have been why Jesus chose that particular image to say that thing at that point right there. That's the kind of thing Jesus does. He is aggressive. Jesus, meek and mild. Mr. Rogers doesn't get in any trouble. You don't crucify Mr. Rogers. Do you all know who Mr. Rogers is? Okay, good. Golly. Following Jesus means following him up to the cross. Paul knew that. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm not in this for me anymore. I no longer live. Paul still breathed. His heart still beat while he wrote those words to the church in Galatians. But he meant it in the way the Moravians later understood. In a way that Father Damien understood. He meant it in the way Jesus submitted himself to the purposes of his Father in the garden. This is not about me. Now, I, I, I doubt, just statistics-wise, and because of the place we live and the, the political situation here, I doubt that you will be asked to anticipate torture and death and say, yes, Lord. I just doubt. I'm not going to pretend like, you better look out, man. There's guys coming in these doors, and they're going to hold a gun to your head and say, are you a Christian? If you say yes, they're going to blow your brains out. So get ready. That's, I, that's unlikely. It happens in crazy stories. You may go, you, God may call you to a country where that is exactly what happens to you. I don't know. But that's not the point. The early church made, a, made a, an important, uh, it wasn't a distinction. They expanded the definition of a martyr. There was a red martyr, which meant blood. You died. A martyr who, who lost their physical life for Christ was a red martyr. There were also white martyrs, and they were elevated to the same status of honor. People who had given up their lives for Christ and still lived. Lived to talk about it. Whether your life ends up being a red or white martyr, you are called to be a martyr. This is not about you anymore. Now, I don't forget 
don't forget what we talked about all at the, before this in this weekend, okay? This is not some, um, don't forget that your father loves you. That your father asks you to do these things because he knows what's best. Don't forget that he invites you in intimate communion. You notice what Jesus is doing when he's in this battle? He's in prayer. He's in communion. He's in relational interaction with his father who loves him. God is not a meanie. He's not a bully. You are not a pawn. You are a precious son and daughter who he would rather die than let you come to any permanent harm. This is the God who asks you to follow him. This is the God who says, die in a sense so that you can actually live. Paul uses a great phrase with Timothy. He says, hang on to the life that is truly life. We need to redefine what it means to be alive as Christians. The life that is truly life is one that is not about you anymore. That you say, you know what? I'm actually not even living for me anymore. It's not even about me. It's about Jesus. It's about God. Every morning I wake up and say, what do you want me to do? Every person I pass on my campus, I say, what do you want me to do? And as you get close to God in communion, as you hear over and over and over again how much He loves you, your heart will grow for His things, His heart. And you'll know what He wants you to do because you're familiar with Him. And so you know when you should go to class and know when you should stop and talk to somebody. I used to freak out because I passed, you know, like a hundred students every day at school. I thought, I just need to stop and preach to every single person and never go to school again. And there was a weird, whacked out community kind of on our campus. They were traveling. They were called the Bicycle Boys. And they actually believed that. They said, drop out of school, man. If you want to follow Jesus, you better drop out of school. Jesus was homeless. You better be too. And they were, they were scraggly beards, hadn't showered. And it was like by choice. It wasn't like some, some like social injustice, injustice had forced them into this stinky place. It was like, no, no, this is what true discipleship is. Whatever. It's still about you. You're still trying to be like this amazing person. It was all about them. They were all about trying to be good enough, trying to be hardcore enough. It's not that at all. Have you died? Or do you still live for you? We're going to close with a little bit of time of silent reflection because I think that some of us need to talk to Jesus a little bit. And you've got to ask a very serious question. Jesus, for me, in my situation, where you've called me from, where you're calling me to, I don't know. What does dying to myself... What does saying, not what I want, but what you want, look like practically for me? What do you want me to do? Here's a crazy idea. Ask him. He might just let you know. You'll be surprised. It may be some kind of sense in your head that you're like, oh, I didn't come up with that on my own. Run it by your pastors. Run it by somebody who knows you and is wise. Talk it through with them a little bit. Don't just react. Don't just sort of you know, knee-jerk something. Talk it through. And trust in the mystery that God loves you to death, quite literally. It's, not, it's, it's, it's only, well, yeah, it's a scary question. Let's not pretend it's not. The call to follow Jesus is a scary question sometimes. Because who knows what He's going to ask you to do? But He loves you. He loves you.
Bless you. So that's what we're going to pray. And after that, a little bit of the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing some songs. And if you would like to be prayed with or prayed for, we're going to be up here. Me and some of the staff. And you can come forward or you can bring your core leader with you and pray with them. Jesus needed someone to pray with. Jesus needed to find strength to keep praying. If you're getting stirred or, or maybe there's something very specific that God has His finger on, His finger gently but firmly on, and you know it needs to come through, you know it needs to happen, but you're, you're spooked or scared or intimidated or whatever, and you just need to pray with somebody about that thing, come forward for some prayer while we're singing. We'll start with some silent reflection so you can think about it and journal a little bit, and then we'll just sing a couple songs, three or four, maybe five songs. In that process, come pray if you want to. I'll be up here. Some of the staff will be up here. Core leaders, come pray for somebody in your core when you see them come up. Not because that's, there's something magic about coming to the altar. But sometimes, because we, we're physical and spiritual connected beings, sometimes standing up in your chair and walking forward and sitting down in front and praying with somebody, sometimes that cements something God wants to do in our lives. It has an effect. We're, we're, we're physical beings. It helps. It's not a magic little wand like, oh, now I'm going to die every day. Yay. It's just, it's, this might help you decide. It might help you get serious. It might help your, it'll be like a marker where you can remember. I, I went forward that day and I'm going to remember that. I'm going to stick to that. It can be helpful. So let's pray. And as we pray, think, Father, who loves me, whose I am, who is proud of me, who invites me into communion, who says, follow me. Not what I want, but what you want. Jesus, show us what that looks like.
We've, uh, we've gone really late tonight, so we, if you look at the schedule, we're actually supposed to have another session. Um, Brad's going to, I don't know what Brad's going to do. Uh, why don't UNT, y'all meet with him right there in the back corner and y'all can figure out a plan. Okay, so we're not going to do that last session. Um, and that's fine. We've, we've gotten uh, a lot in. It's been a very busy day. Um, as far as tonight, we'll have, uh, you know, free time. Again, try and be in bed by uh, 1.30. Tomorrow we start a little bit earlier. So breakfast is 8 to 8.30. And tomorrow's quite a bit tighter because uh, Quad C's bus will get here at 10.30 and we'll have to be loading up. And so for uh, if you're riding the bus back on, on Collin College, in other words, if you rode the bus out. Casey, where are you? I've lost you. You need to bring your luggage down here, and we'll put it in one of these rooms over here before breakfast. Is that what you said? Yeah. So go ahead and in the morning pack up. The rest of us can pack up after.